Good morning. Uh, this morning we'll be reading out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you would please rise in honor of God's holy word. Uh, again, Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, it is on page 1,922. Again, Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides to soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And Lord, we ask that, especially as we hear your word preached this morning, that we remember that it is not words that were written thousands of years ago to audience far removed from us, but still a word that is relevant to us today. I pray that the message would be true to your word, that it would be clear, and that, Father, our hearts would not only be warmed, but also compelled to behold our Savior with greater affection than we did before. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I have to confess that it's difficult to stand before you to preach this morning because this week I've been distracted by a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, I've been thinking about X-Wings, TIE Fighters, the dark side of the Force, the light side of the Force. I've been thinking about Death Stars and Empires and Rebellions and Lightsabers and Jedi. And if you didn't know, the new Star Wars movie just released on Friday. And my wife could tell you at home every evening I would turn to her and I would start to chant, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, in anticipation for this new film. Now, as my mind has been distracted by this new Star Wars film, and I was preparing this message, the Lord really brought a thought into my mind from a book I read a long time ago as well, uh, from a book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Now, if you've read the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you know that it's a really interesting book because C.S. Lewis depicts a senior tempter, Screwtape, advising a junior tempter, Wormwood, and how to lead people away from the Lord. And in one of the very opening letters, 
Screwtape recounts a time when he had a patient, a patient who was in a museum staring at a piece and began pondering spiritual truth. Now, if you're a tempter, spiritual truth is dangerous business, and you don't want your patient to be thinking about things of God. And so Screwtape suggests to this patient, you know, it's much too early to think about spiritual things, especially when you haven't had lunch. And the patient thinks, oh, yeah, that's right. And so as Screwtape kind of reminds us, yeah, doesn't lunch sound good? You know, maybe a sandwich or a cup of tea? The patient decides to get up from his seat, leave the museum, and then Screwtape brings his attention to the newspaper boy, say, the midday news for sale. And it's like, yeah, the newspaper, that's right. Or the bus passes by, it's like, oh, did I miss the last bus to get to my destination? And before you know it, that spiritual thoughts vanishes. It's gone. Now, what I'm trying to say, and I think what the Lord was saying to me, is beware of distractions. Because distractions, while they may be sometimes good, if you think too much of them, they may cause you to diminish the significance of Christ to us. You know, and especially during this Christmas season when we're so distracted by different things to do, right? We have shopping lists to complete, decorations that may still need to be put up, travel plans to see family that still need to be confirmed, and work projects that need to be completed before companies shut down. As you see the clock tick down and the days kick down to the company shut down. And those thoughts tend to preoccupy us. They continue to roll in our minds, and eventually Christ, which should be in the very front of our minds, becomes an afterthought. And as distractions make Christ an afterthought, it becomes a distant thought. So much as we don't think about Christ at all, or as often as we should. And by my own confession, I also struggle with the same thing especially this past week. So then how do we recover the significance of Christ in our lives? How do we really put Christ in the forefront, front and center, as a primary thought of our day? How do we really recover the significance of Christ, especially during this Christmas season when we're supposed to remember the birth of our Savior? Now, I, of course, don't have the answers, but the author of Hebrews does provide us a compelling answer. Uh, the author of Hebrews wrote a letter to a church who was suffering a long time ago. And this church experienced shame, maybe even beatings, thrown out of homes, and some of them may have even be killed. And they would have asked themselves, how do we, in spite of the suffering that we're experiencing keep Christ front and center? How do we keep Christ as a significant part of our lives? Because if we don't, we may turn back to the old ways, to a life before Christ. And the author of Hebrews tries to provide a compelling response to them 
so that they would continue to believe and put Christ first and foremost in their thoughts. Now, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and so we're actually entering right kind of in the middle in the beginning, in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, which Karen read so beautifully for us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Now, to answer this particular question about how do we recover the significance of Christ in our lives, the answer is actually quite simple. It's this idea of reflection. Now, I'm not talking about the reflection that you see in the mirror, but the reflection in terms of thought, in terms of thinking, in terms of pondering. Just as any person who knows good food reflects on a great meal, you have to reflect. Just as a person who enjoys good food knows to think about the appearance of the food, the colors, to think about the texture as you partake of the food, or even the taste and how it complements each other, the sweet and the sour, the salty and the sweet, that you begin to ruminate and you think about the meal. And that's the type of reflection that I'm talking about. But what type of reflection, what are we supposed to do in that reflection? And the author of Hebrews provides us answers to three questions. Um, the first question, of course, who do we reflect on? So for those of you who are a little bit more particular about your English, the better question would be, on whom do you reflect, right? Or, and then what do we reflect on? And then where do we perform this reflection? Uh, in short, it's the who, what, and where of reflection. And Hebrews chapter 3 Verse 1 provides us the answer to the first question. Who do we reflect on? Well, if you've been here the last two weeks, we reflect on Christ. Reflect on Jesus. We think about him. We ponder him. It's the answer that every third grade Sunday school student knows to give when the teacher asks them a question. Jesus. Right? That we are to reflect upon Christ. Now, it's interesting because in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, there's a particular emphasis on an imperative, on a command, on this word consider. Let me read verse 1 to you again. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider him. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, he says, holy brothers who, are, who share in a heavenly calling, is that referring to me? Because I don't quite feel so holy all the time. I mean, I even think back of this past week. I think of arguments I got into with a coworker, you know, conflict with my spouse, when I said a harsh word to my child, when I disobeyed my parents. You know, I don't, I don't quite feel holy. And so how could this actually be referring to me? Well, holiness... It's not just this idea of high moral living. But holiness is also the idea of being set apart. Just as you set apart certain articles of clothing in your closet, that suit and evening gown that you wear only to special occasions. I mean, you don't get up on Saturday mornings, decide to put on a suit and pick up a pint of milk at the H-A-B, right? 
or you don't decide to put on your evening gown for a nice morning jog, those articles of clothing are set apart for those special times when you're having that candlelight dinner or for those weddings that you're invited to. And likewise, as Christians, you have been set apart. That If you have professed faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been set apart, distinguished. And so this text is for us, brother and sister. And now it talks about the word consider. Let's kind of spend some time thinking about this word consider. Now, different translations have different renderings of this particular word. So if, you're having, if you have an NIV or an NET or an LLT, you may be reading something different. So, for example, the NIV would have the term fix your thoughts on, the Net Bible would say take note of, or the NLT, the New Living Translation, would render it even think carefully. Now, when we think about consider, we think about how we may consider maybe What are we going to wear tomorrow for work? Should we wear the blue shirt, the white shirt, the yellow shirt? Well, I'll go into the closet or consider. Or maybe it might be this passive-aggressive way of dismissing an idea, right? You go to somebody for some relationship advice, and then you respond, I'll consider it. And you already know that you've made up your mind, and you've dismissed it. Now, that's not the idea of consider here, because the word consider it's kind of related to the idea of stargazing. Now, I'm no stargazer. I don't even own a telescope. But when I was in elementary school, I had a science teacher who was a stargazer. And he told me that, you know, in order for you to stargaze, you had to have a clear sky. You had to have a telescope. And you had to know what to look for. You had to look for the Big Dipper, or the Little Dipper, or Orion, or the North Star. And then as you look in your telescope to these stars, you begin to gaze. And as you gaze, you begin to wonder. And you begin to say, whoa. And you say, whoa, because as you look at these stars, as you look at these constellations, you realize how small you are in the universe. And when's the last time that we've gazed upon Christ? To look upon him, to reflect upon him, and to say, wow. Because of how small we are and how big our God is. It's to reflect on Christ. Now, it's interesting because in this verse, he kind of summarizes what he's been talking about already in chapter 1 and 2 through the two terms, the apostle and high priest. Now, we've heard of apostles before. You know, Paul is an apostle, Peter is an apostle. But we don't really hear often Jesus being an apostle. Now, when we hear apostle, we think about the apostolic office, apostolic authority that has been conferred upon someone. So when we But there's also the idea of an apostle, the Greek word apostolos, derived from the word apostolo, the word sent, that the apostle is the one who is sent, the herald, the messenger. And Christ himself is a better messenger than the angels, right? That in chapter 1, when Pastor Jason preached two weeks ago, he talked about how Jesus is the better angel, that he's a better messenger, that he is the better 
sent one. And even in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself acknowledges that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in Hebrews chapter 1, for your recollection, in verse 2 it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. That Jesus is the one who was sent. Now it's also this idea of Jesus being the high priest, which also should be something we remember, because Pastor Jason just preached about it last week. The fact that Jesus is the better high priest in chapter 2. It says in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful, wait for it, high priest, right? So these two words are just a summary of what has already gone before that we are to reflect on Christ, the apostle and the high priest. And doesn't that really change the way that we pray, knowing that Jesus is the one that has the authority to change our circumstance? He is the high priest who intercedes for us. I mean, imagine the high heavenly court. God seated as the chief justice. Jesus on your defense. Satan on the side of the prosecutor. And Satan would say, you remember this person, this so-called believer, You know what wrong he's done. He lied just the previous day to a coworker about something. And Jesus would say, objection. Because he's placed his faith in me, that sin has been forgiven. Or Satan would object to him, but but, but, don't you remember just the last day when he was impatient with the person in line at the grocery store? You know, that's sinful. How could he actually be a Christian? And Jesus would eject again and say, my death paid for that sin. That Jesus is the high priest that intercedes for us daily. And doesn't that give us freedom to go before God, to ask for the forgiveness of our sins, knowing that we have Jesus interceding for us? And then he also says, the author of Hebrew, the apostle and high priest of our confession of our common belief, the pledge that we make as Christians. And the reason why we had the Nicene Creed read this morning is because the creed itself is a confession of what we as Christians believe, especially about Christ. And for your convenience, we printed out on the backside of the insert. Now, the reason why we had it print out on the back of your insert, because think about this. I'm going to read from this middle paragraph just a little bit, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And it goes on, through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And this is what we believe about Christ as Christians. So I would even go so far to say that if you encounter someone who doesn't believe 
any tenant of what we confess in this confession, I would be slow to call them a Christian. Because orthodox living, orthodox belief could be summarized in this particular paragraph about Christ and about the gospel. It's a confession. Now, not only is Jesus the apostle, the high priest, he's also the faithful one. In verse 2 in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, it says, Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, we're introduced to a faithful servant, Moses. If you were to ask the Jews or Israel, who would you say is the greatest prophet or servant of God? They would certainly say Moses. I mean, after all, Moses delivered them out of Israel. He led them in the wilderness. He instructed the construction of the tabernacle. He received the law from God. And he led Israel to victories against their enemies. That with that type of resume or even cover letter, you know, if there was ever another opening for a servant of God, Moses would fit that billing. But there's also another story that talks about Moses' faithfulness in the book of Numbers. Now, if you remember in the book of Numbers, Moses recalls a little bit of a sibling conflict. You have Aaron, Miriam, Moses. Moses has just married a Cushite woman, uh, for contemporary terms, an Ethiopian. And Aaron and Miriam are a little bit jealous, upset, and they do as all good siblings do in sibling conflict. They talk behind their little brother's back, right? They say, you know, why does God speak through Moses? You know, I mean, God speaks through us too. You know, what an upstart, unappreciative little brother. And so God decides to call a family meeting at the tabernacle, gathers Aaron, Miriam, and Moses, and says, why are you saying these things about my servant Moses? For he is the most faithful in my house. And for Miriam's slander, she gets struck with leprosy, which of course later is healed. But Moses, even God considers the most faithful because he did what God instructed him to do. And Jesus is also like him. That whatever God commanded, Jesus fulfilled, did, and carried out. And that is the Jesus that we reflect on. Now, then if Jesus is like Moses, the author of Hebrews also makes the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses, that he is far better, just like your iPhone is far better than the last generation flip phone. But the Jesus that we worship as our Savior and as our Lord is far better than the Moses that we worshiped before or that we actually followed. And so it brings us to the second question. What do we reflect on? Because so far in the book of Hebrews, the author has given us various things to reflect on, how Jesus is the better messenger, the better angel, how Jesus is the better uh, brother, right? And now the author of Hebrews says, reflect on Christ superiority to Moses. Reflect on how Jesus is better than Moses, how he is far superior, 
far more supreme than Moses. And there are three things that the author of Hebrews points out. In verse 3, the first one that he points out to us is that Jesus is the builder. In verse 3, it says this, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, I'm no builder. Uh, My wife would testify to you that I'm no handyman around the apartment. If there's something that breaks, I put in an order to get a handyman to come fix it. But I have built Lego sets. Okay, now, I have built quite a few of them, and if you walk by my office, you will definitely see those Lego sets built. And when somebody sometimes comes into my office and marvels at the Death Star model that's sitting there on my desk, one of the first questions they ask me, how long did it take you to build that? Right? And I would say, well, it took me three or four months. It's not so much that the Death Star, amazing as it is, does not require great reflection and pondering, but it's about the builder who built the Death Star because it took time, it took months to put it together. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is a master Lego builder, but he did build a house that has far more honor than the house itself, that he is the constructor, the builder, that is worthy of our reflection. Now, not only is he a house builder, but the author of Hebrews also talks about how Jesus is the son. If you look with me at verse 5, it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Moses, a servant. He's the one who God called upon to do his work in the nation of Israel. But he was just a servant. He did what he was told. But then in verse 6, the author of Hebrews says this, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. That he is the heir. It is Jesus who will inherit the earth as his kingdom, not Moses. And an heir has definitely more privileges than a servant. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have servants. My parents don't have servants. And so maybe the more proper analogy here is an employee versus the son of an owner. Because an employee does what he or she is told, lest you be fired, right? But a son or a daughter, they have special access to the owner's office, to the owner's private phone number, to be reached anytime. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that if Jesus is the son, he is far more worthy of our thought and of our reflection than Moses. So not only is Jesus the builder, the son, but he is also the chosen one. Right? And I use that word specifically because in so many stories and movies that we read about and watch, we hear the story about the chosen one, the one who is going to fulfill all prophecy. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy that Moses wrote about, and we see that in verse 5. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, which we read earlier, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. 
that the things that Moses wrote about were fulfilled in Christ. So take a stroll with me down memory lane. So you think about Moses leading the people out of Israel. They celebrated the Passover feast, where they had to kill and slaughter a Passover lamb. That was recorded to us because there was another Passover lamb that would eventually come. Jesus, our Passover lamb, that would be shed for our sins so the wrath of God would pass over us. Now, not only do we think about Passover, maybe we even think about the construction of the tabernacle, right? That's the place where the Spirit of God dwelt. And in the Gospel of John, we see that Christ came down and dwelt among us. The word tabernacled among us. That he is the fulfillment of even the construction of the tabernacle. Or we think about Moses receiving the law. And how the law tells us as human beings that we fall short of God's holy standard. That we are hopeless before righteous and holy God. And Jesus fulfills that law to become our perfect sacrifice. Now the things that Moses writes about, Jesus fulfills. I mean, Moses even writes about a greater prophet that was to come, and that Israel was to listen to him. And that prophet? Jesus. Jesus is the one that the Old Testament testifies to. He is the chosen one. So what are we supposed to reflect on, according to this particular text, is the fact that Jesus is the builder, he is the son, and he is the chosen one. Now, the question then is, where do we reflect upon Christ? Well, we reflect on Christ's superiority to Moses in community. That we reflect on Christ being better than Moses with the company of God's people. Now, Moses created the tabernacle for the people of God to gather, right? People would gather in front of the tabernacle, offer the sacrifice, hear the reading of scripture every seven years. But Christ, he creates the church for the people to gather. And we see this in this last verse, verse 6. It says here, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You see, when we talk about Christ being the builder of a house, he wasn't building a house that you think about in terms of four walls and a roof. He was talking about building a house of people. A people who would believe in his death and resurrection a people that would gather as saints. And as we gather together as a church, because it says here, we, the purpose is to exhort one another. If you look with me later on in, the, in chapter 2, uh, there is a particular passage I want to point our attention to in verse 13. It says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness 
of sin, that we are to exhort one another, encourage one another, challenge one another. And this idea is also carried out in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. And so how does meeting together as a church stir our affections for Christ? Well, if you think about it, you sit here in worship service, and every Sunday you hear the preaching of God's word. That the preaching of God's word reminds us that we are sojourners in this world as followers of Christ on the, a journey awaiting the kingdom. And not only do you sit under the preaching of the word, but you also participate in the ordinances, right? That when you have baptism, it reminds you of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? As Pastor Fred said last Sunday, buried in Christ, raised to new life. That we are to remember the common confession that we have as believers. Not only do we practice baptism, but we also practice the Lord's Supper in church. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are one body in Christ. That as we partake in the bread, that we are saying that we have no issue or conflict with the brother or sister sitting next to us in the pew. And as we take the cup, we remember the cup that we will drink with our Lord when he returns, looking forward to the return of Christ. Ordinances. Baptism and Lord's Supper. And even the idea of church discipline within a worship service points us to Christ, exhorting each other, because when we exercise church discipline, it's a desire to help others walk by the Spirit so that their behavior and their lives would not tarnish the reputation of our Lord and Savior. That these things that we practice together as a community and as a church point us, again, to reflect and ponder upon Christ. So think about it. When you sit in worship service on Sunday mornings, how do these different elements teach us to think more deeply about Jesus? So to summarize in this particular text, the main point, the main idea, is that we need to reflect on Christ's superiority to Moses in community. They were to think deeply of our Savior, and in this particular text, his superiority, his, how he is better than Moses, but also in the context of a community, and especially the church. Now, as I think about Christmas, it's interesting because a few months ago, I had someone stop me at a restaurant. Uh, the, the, the person was eavesdropping on a conversation I was having with a friend about our faith and about Christianity. Uh, so we introduced ourselves to this particular gentleman, and uh, as we were getting ready to leave the parking lot, he actually ran out of the restaurant and stopped us and had me roll down my window, and he asked, you know, if you guys are Christian, why do you celebrate Christmas? Because isn't Christmas a pagan holiday? You're like, why do you have Christmas trees, stockings? Like, the Bible doesn't say anything about Christmas trees or stockings. And I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a really good question. And you're right. 
You know, December 25th is not necessarily the exact day that Jesus was born. You know, there is disagreements about that. And yes, the Bible doesn't talk about Christmas trees or stockings, but Christmas is a time that we as Christians set aside, set apart to reflect upon the first coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's not only to remember his first advent, but it's also to look forward to his second coming, to his return. And so I thought about the star over the city of Bethlehem that led the Magi to our Savior, right? And that this is the season that we think about that same star that was over that city to think about the birth of our Savior, but also to gaze at Christ as we await his return. So let's pray.